Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. So the life expectancy gap for Māori compared to non-Māori is seven and a half years. And the the reason for that gap, or the vast majority of the reason for that gap is actually heart disease. And so if we can solve or begin to solve the equity issue in the heart health space, then we will narrow that gap. And that's just one example of a gap that exists for Māori and Pacific people compared to non-Māori and non-Pacific people. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Co Clerk and Canon DNA. That's the voice of Dr. Anna Rolleston, co director of Putahi Manoa. Putahi Manoa, or Healthy Hearts for Aotearoa New Zealand, is a centre of research excellence that's focused on equity and heart health outcomes for Māori, Pacific people, and for women. And that's a bit of a lofty goal. <laughs> In Aotearoa, Centres of Research Excellence, CORES, are funded by the Tertiary Education Commission. The chosen CORES are given a pot of money across a chunk of time to focus on a specific programme of work. We know that there are really strong inequities in all of those spaces in terms of heart health. And this core is, has really been set up to specifically focus on reducing those inequities and improving the way that we've done things in the past, doing things differently so that we get better health outcomes for people. It's a lofty goal because of the complex factors behind these inequities. For starters, research traditionally hasn't been done with a diversity of people, so we don't really understand what differences there might be. In heart health, and if we think about how the research that we do informs the clinical practice and the um, best practice guidelines that doctors might use to help us to be well, largely in the heart health space, the research evidence that we use to inform our clinical decisions, that's all collected in a population that doesn't reflect our population here in Aotearoa. So there's certainly not a lot of data about Māori and Pacific people in our evidence base. And even if we think about Pākehā New Zealanders, the vast majority of the evidence that we use for best practice has come from um, European Scandinavian populations that are really quite different to us now thinking about the number of generations of Kiwis I suppose that we have in New Zealand. So what we're trying to do is to ensure that the research that we do that is then going to inform the practice that becomes normal is informed by our own population and is relevant to us. And that's particularly important for Māori and Pacific people where we don't have a lot of information and research hasn't been done with Māori and Pacific people. But also for women, 
So all of this evidence and data that I've talked about is largely collected in men. And of course there are some clear differences between men and women, both physiologically and sociologically. So that's a really big gap. People say, oh, women have atypical symptoms of heart disease than men. This is Dr. Anna Panampalam, one of the researchers involved in the core, based at the University of Auckland. And I always go, what do you mean atypical? We are half the population. You know, how, why would you think men's symptoms are typical and ours are typical? And that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, people will say it without blinking. It just you know, as, as, as if it's a matter of fact. So it's important to talk about these things, to normalise that we are not atypical people. We'll get back to Anna Panampalam in a bit to talk about the focus of her work. But I also asked Anna Rolleston about these symptom differences between men and women. That comes from a history of heart disease being seen as a man's condition. And also what I mentioned before about collecting evidence only in male population, so we only knew that to be normal. You know, in in medical terms, we talk about the 70 kilo male as the standard. You know, in a textbook, that's what is talked about, the 70 kilo male. I don't even know if many males are 70 kilos these days, but that's not really, that's not our population either. But yeah, women do experience very different symptoms of having a heart attack. And in fact, we often um, talk about women not having symptoms. And it's probably not that they don't have any symptoms, it's it's that they um, may not recognise that what they're experiencing is heart-related because it's not that traditional kind of dramatic um, chest pain type thing. So, for, you know, the generalisation of someone having a heart attack is they've got a crushing sensation in their chest that might spread to their left shoulder and into their left jaw and maybe down the left of their back into their shoulder blade type thing. And that's what we would call classic. Women can feel like they've got a really bad flu or really, really tired and just not themselves. Um, And we don't really know the reasons at this stage for the difference in those symptoms, but it is pretty clear that there is a difference. This isn't specific to heart research. Women have traditionally been underrepresented in clinical trials. And taking results of research done only on men and applying it to women's health has caused a wide range of issues, including poor estimation of disease risk and major problems with drug dosages. But this sounds like a simple enough fix, right? Make sure research studies involve the diversity of people you want to find out about. But there are inbuilt inequities there too. Being a research participant can be seen as a privilege because you've got the time and space to participate and that's partly why we don't see a wide diversity of research participants because it really is only open well traditionally traditionally it's only been open to a a group of people who are able to engage. Here's Dr Alamanza Fatoese speaking about access issues for Maori and Pacifica peoples. Alamanda is at the University of Otago's Christchurch Heart Institute and she spoke at a science festival event last year quite a few factors, um, practical ones. Uh, one is actually usually the research involves going to the hospital in Christchurch. The parking is terrible. Actually, anywhere where there's a tertiary hospital, you know, a teaching hospital, it's a nightmare trying to get there. Um, but also, is the research relevant and is it going to be 
within certain hours. So um, from a Pacific perspective, if you're, say, a, a woman who has family, so you could be a grandmother, you could be an auntie, you could be a mother who has children to look after, um, it's actually not practical to come into research studies and participate what Putahi Manawa is trying to do is also to ask how does engagement work for you? How how could we get you participating in a piece of research work? Because then all of those types of practical things that prevent access at the moment are enlightened to us and then we can modify our processes to ensure we do get that diversity of participation. But the diversity of people participating in research is just one element of what Putahi Manwa wants to do differently. They don't just want to change up who is involved in the studies, but also fundamentally how the research is done. Here's co-director Anna Rolleston again. We're very good in science and in medicine, and we have a good way of collecting evidence and analysing that evidence and using it. But that's only one way of seeing the world. And partly what we would like to achieve in this core is using other ways of looking at research data and analysing that data so that we get a different point of view. And that might cover off, for example, the non-physical aspects of health. So if we think about a Māori model of health, which is a holistic model that thinks about a whole person, not just their body, in their physiology, then those are aspects that we know we need to put into heart health research so that it moves into heart health, the practice. It's not just about the clinical and the real science-y stuff, it's also about researching within the worldview of the people that we want to have the impact for. We also have to move away from the idea that as the expert in my space, I create a research question based on maybe my career trajectory and um, what I'm interested in, and then that rolls out into clinical practice, and it might have absolutely no relevance at all to a population of people. So part of what we need to do in Putahi Manoa is understand how to engage with those communities because we're not just going to turn up in there and say, hey, we've got all the answers to the problems that you want solved. It's a relationship-building exercise. And that's not something that in research land is often funded well, you know, because it takes quite a lot of time to create a relationship, um, any kind of relationship, let alone one where you're an entity wanting to um, create long-term relationships with a community and so that's a very new part of the process for many of the core members. Yeah you can't rock up and say hey we want to do research experiments on you guys (laughs) because we've got this interesting question it just can't work like that. Yeah and that way of we want to do research on you was the old way and what we're saying is tell us what research we can do with you. So ambitious goals for the core and an aim of doing things differently. The idea of setting up cores is to promote collaborative research in a specific area across a number of third-level education institutes. So while Putahi Manoa is hosted in the University of Auckland Grafton campus, where Anna and I caught up, it is a partnership involving a number of universities and groups across Aotearoa. Researchers can apply to the core for training, support and funding 
if they fit with the value and goals of the core. We haven't worked in this space before, so um, it really is business not as usual when we're feeling our way through it as we go. But we're really determined and um, committed to doing something different and what different looks like we're building as we speak. How we do it is we have essentially got a set of values that um, describes our process within Putahi Manawa so that everyone who engages with the core, uh, who seeks funding from us and, and wants to participate in core activities, understands that it's under the proviso that we're not doing it the way that we've always done it. So the way that you've always collected your research evidence or designed your research questions that's not going to happen anymore. And even though we can't tell you exactly what new looks like, we're going to work on that together. And I think that's the only way that you get change is to force it. Um, and that makes for some very uncomfortable conversations, actually, because you can't just change the way that people have um, done their work, performed their research um, engaged in clinical practice overnight, especially if you've got a long career. And what we talk to our members about is it's really about shifting the power. So it's shifting the power away from us, who are supposedly experts, to our community and those populations where we want to have impact and letting them tell us what is important to them what they need solved in terms of heart health, and then we act as facilitators. So they hold the power, and that doesn't happen in research land, in academic land, and it doesn't happen in the health system. And so that's why it's really different, is everything that we're building is based off the voice of those who we want to ensure have equitable heart health outcomes. The Christchurch Heart Institute that Alamanda works at is one of the core partners. Her biomedical research looks at finding new biomarkers of heart disease in Māori and Pacifica peoples. A lot of my research um, has been at the community level, so understanding what the risk factors are for particularly our Māori and, and now Pacific um, peoples. Um, uh, the big driver behind that is that our, our Māori and our Pacifica peoples are still dying of heart disease at an earlier age than the rest of the population in New Zealand. A lot of my research is looking at measuring those risk markers of heart disease, but also trying to understand what are the underlying factors, um, the genetics and also the epigenetic risk factors um, in our Pacific population. Um, you know, so it's not just about the they drink too much, they eat bad food. Actually, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's understanding that there's a whole... Um, a bigger picture around our risk of heart disease and how we can help. Anna Panampalam, based in the University of Auckland, has a different focus. So I am a trained reproductive biologist, but I am working with physiologists um, like Professor Julian Patton. Professor Julian Patton is the other co-director of Putahi Manoa. To understand how many of the pregnancy complications have increased risks for developing heart disease and diabetes later in life, for generally for both mother and the baby. So I'm interested in understanding 
how the process of that happening and uh, the biological basis for it and whether we can do anything to prevent it. In terms of pregnancy complications, Anna is particularly focused on gestational diabetes. So it's uh, when pregnant people develop glucose intolerance or diabetes uh, first time during pregnancy. Pregnancy itself is a naturally mild insulin resistant state because you do need more glucose to be transferred to the baby to grow properly. But gestational diabetes is when it worsens even beyond that normal mild insulin resistant state. And then it generally resolves itself once the person delivers. Uh, However, they are more likely to develop diabetes Uh, they actually have up to 70% uh, lifetime risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And as you know, type 2 diabetes is one of the biggest risk factors for developing heart disease. So 70% chance... For for the mother. For the mother. And then for the baby? For the uh, babies, there are suggestions that it could be up to 40% risk of developing, especially in indigenous population around the world. I guess it's one of those things that's probably quite complicated to tease out because there are other, there's probably genetic factors and lifestyle factors and all kinds of things. There are, it's a multifactorial disease, for sure. Uh, there's genetics, there's environment, uh, everything plays a role. So it is really hard to tease out. But having said that, uh, the exposure within the womb to hyperglycemia or increased glucose level obviously has an issue. So for gestational diabetes, the biggest risk factors are family history, age, and ethnicity. So it's one of the few diseases that I've encountered where it has really uh, significant ethnic disparities. The prevalence is about 3% among white women compared to double that in Maori and Pacific Islanders and about 16% in Chinese women and more than 20% in Indian women. So South, South Asians, both in South Asia as well as here, are very, very prone to developing gestational diabetes. And we don't really understand why that is the case. Majority of the research that we have currently have been in white women. So we don't actually have enough studies to even look at whether there are any specific mechanisms that might answer some of these differences, uh, which is, again, why it's important to make sure that we study different populations. There are a few avenues of research that Anna is working on. In the lab, she's working with a rat model, using molecular biology to try to figure out the steps that lead from gestational diabetes to long-term risk for heart disease. We've got preliminary data looking at mothers who have, these are rat mothers, who've experienced hyperglycemia, and we've then followed their uh, rat pups till they are about 100 days old um, and have shown, so the rat pups, they were put on a healthy diet, if you want. So the only difference is, is the mothers were, were, they were exposed to, the offspring were exposed to um, high glucose um, during pregnancy. You could already see differences in heart parameters, even though you wouldn't say they are f- they've got full-blown heart disease or metabolic um, uh, disturbances, but you could see differences between them. So I'm interested in teasing out these mechanisms of how that might work, and also 
we are planning intervention studies in mothers if they are exposed to hypoglycemia. Can we do something early on that would prevent this? She's previously done some work with human samples, where she looked for blood markers that might act as warning signs that the person is more likely to develop gestational diabetes. We uh, looked at patients from the SCOPE study, you may or may not know. Uh, SCOPE study, they collected samples like from, I think, 2000 to 2006 in Auckland, in Adelaide, in Ireland. Um, and I was looking at just the Auckland samples. So the purpose of the study was to collect uh, blood samples from uh, mothers who are low-risk mothers to see if we can identify early biomarkers for pregnancy complications. Um, So we've got blood samples from 15 weeks gestation, 20 weeks gestation, but these are mainly Caucasian cohort, and we have very little incidence of gestational diabetes in this 2,000 women cohort, but I've looked at... uh, particular molecule that I'm interested in called certain one in these mothers and I've shown that in mothers who subsequently develop gestational diabetes this molecule is reduced in the blood as early as 15 weeks for example when you wouldn't there's no test at 15 weeks to to diagnose women with gestational diabetes so it would be interesting to see can we actually see that difference early on if reduced sirtuin 1 acts as a warning sign, then, Anna says, we might be able to earlier flag who's at risk for gestational diabetes and move more into prevention. In New Zealand, there's universal screening for gestational diabetes. Around 24 to 28 weeks of pregnancy, the pregnant person does a glucose tolerance test. But maybe, Anna says... This system isn't working for everyone. We know that in, uh, as I said, in Maori and Pacific Islanders, uh, the prevalence of gestational diabetes is a lot higher than white women. Uh, Even though we have universal screening, the screening strategies doesn't always work in Maori communities because it's not designed with indigenous communities in mind when it was designed. And we also know at the end of pregnancy, there are protocols that women has to be followed up every year to do uh, glucose tolerance tests to see if their glucose levels are back to normal or if they are uh, worsening. Again, the system is failing our communities in that too because the follow-up rates are also significantly lower in Maori women compared to Pakeha women. So I am interested in we, we could partner in with Maori health professionals and Maori communities to develop a better strategy and framework to improve screening methods, to improve follow-up methods so we can possibly identify these risk factors earlier Uh, diagnose women earlier uh, to prevent further risk of developing type 2 diabetes. This is her goal, because for Anna, early identification and possible prevention is key. Not just for this pregnant person, but for their tamariki and mokopuna. We often talk about what to do to prevent type 2 diabetes or heart disease when it has already manifested. But... It might be that the risk factors were already there early on. And if we could do something early on, we would have prevented not just this manifestation, but 
it's an intergenerational cycle as well. You have a mother who develops gestational diabetes, who gives birth to kids who are more prone to developing um, heart disease and diabetes. And that kid, if uh, they become pregnant, they have more chance of developing gestational diabetes themselves and give birth to kids who are even more prone to developing gestational diabetes. So it's an intergenerational cycle, right? And we're trying to break that. If you break that, hopefully in the near future, we will reduce the prevalence of heart disease. In terms of this new way of working that the core is aiming for, Anna's on board. We can't do science in isolation from the society because that doesn't serve any purpose. And I believe so, even if we find anything under the microscope or in a data point, if we don't understand the context, it's meaningless and we won't actually interpret it properly. So it's important to bring in an equity-based, knowledge-based, society-based solutions with the biomedical research focus. Putahi Manawa's funding began in July 2021 and will last to December 2028. Across that seven and a half years, they will receive $40.5 million in funding. The factors behind gaps in heart health between different people in Aotearoa are incredibly complex. Whether it's lack of knowledge about risk factors for different ethnicities or genders, lack of diversity of people enabled to participate in research, health systems not designed for certain people, or different access to health resources for people living rurally or with different worldviews, it's clear that the scope of the problem is massive. You can hear by her laugh that Anna Rolleston knows exactly the question I'm about to ask. How much are you going to get done? Seven years down the track. (laughs) What are you hoping to have achieved? It's a really good question. I'd love to say that there would be no life expectancy gap between Māori and non-Māori and Pacific and non-Pacific, but I, um, we're not going to solve, you know, it's, it's not going to be a closed book in seven and a half years' time or seven years' time now. What we hope to achieve is um, we hope that we've engaged our community and that they feel comfortable and confident to engage with us and to come to us with their research questions so that we can support um, answering questions that are important to our community to continue to advance heart health outcomes. We hope that we've been in our community with our outreach and education component sharing what we know in academic land and clinical land and languages and ways that our community understands. So we're sharing the knowledge that we have. We're not the knowledge holders, the be-all and end-all of information and that our communities are way more informed about heart health. Um, We hope that we have empowered some of our populations, Māori, Pacific, women, our rural and remote communities, to have some of their questions answered uh, and to have progressed in terms of access to not only research participation but to healthcare. And we hope that we have role modelled a different way of doing health, not just in research but across the board so that we can show others that there is a new way. Because if the way that we've done it 
up until now, if that had have worked, then we wouldn't have these gaps. So it doesn't make any sense at all to continue to work in the way that we have. But we know it's a challenge to think differently, to change, change is hard. And so as a group, we'd like to be able to show in seven years that we've role modelled and that others have followed in our footsteps and so that there's a, a tidal change. Thanks to Dr Anna Rolleston, Dr Anna Panampalam, Dr Alamanda Fatuese and also to Lisa Wong, all part of the Putahi Manua Healthy Hearts for Aotearoa Centre of Research Excellence. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. Or check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Or you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. If you want to know more about the inequity in healthcare issues touched on in this episode, I can highly recommend the podcast Getting Better, a year in the life of a Maori medical student. Find it on the RNZ website or search for it on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.